Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, for the next few episodes, we're going to be doing a series on asymmetry. And to introduce this series, I wanted to talk a little bit about a, a favorite animal of ours, the narwhal. Yes, the, uh, what is it, the corpse whale um, of, of the ocean, the unicorn of the sea. Right, yeah. So, corpse whale, that's literally what its name means, uh, whale of course, wall, but nar uh, meaning corpse. So yeah, it's like a dead body whale having to do with its gray and mottled appearance as it sort of uh, floats around near the top of the water. But the more famous feature of this whale, uh, apart from looking like a corpse, is its horn or tusk, or uh, we can dispute what's the best word to, to use for it here. Uh, but yeah, as you say, it is the unicorn of the polar seas. So the narwhal is a medium-sized Arctic marine mammal in the suborder of toothed whales, or odontoceti, and it is immediately recognizable because most males of the narwhals, and occasionally some females as well, possess a giant spike or tusk growing straight out of their faces, and this tusk can grow absurdly long, up to about three meters or ten feet. And the orientation of this tusk looks very unusual compared to most other mammals. So you think about other mammals with horns or tusks. Uh, you might think about bovines in which the horns rise up off the top of the head. Or you might think about the rhinoceros where it points up from the end of the snout. So kind of, you know, up from the ground. Or you might think about the tusks of a boar or an elephant kind of coming out of the mouth at an angle. But uh, but no, in the in the narwhal, you have a whale's body, which again is a sort of mottled gray tube that can grow about four to five meters long in adulthood. And then the tusk just juts straight out of the face, adding another three meters or so or up to another three meters or so in length. So when the tusk is present, the animal is sort of shaped like a dart or like a spear. 
Now, when we've talked about narwhals before, I think especially in our episodes on the unicorn legend, uh, we we talked a lot about the uh, theories behind the origin and the purpose of the tusk. We're not going to completely rehash that discussion here, though uh, I did want to note a development which was in a more recent paper I came across addressing the biological function of the tusk. So a long-running question for marine biologists who study the narwhal is, why this giant tusk? It's, it looks very unwieldy. What is it for? What is the evolutionary justification? And this can be difficult to study because it is not a trivial task to go out and just observe narwhals in the wild. <laughs> not only do they live underwater, uh, but they live under the Arctic ice. So they remain veiled in a great deal of mystery. But we're not without some clues. And I guess the place to start is that the tusk looks so threatening to the naive human brain that we immediately want to say it is a weapon, right? You know, it is a spear, it is a dart. That, that's what I, without even thinking about it, compared the animal to. Right, right. You think of it being some sort of a javelin or a spear, um, a harpoon on the front of this uh, this whale that it's using to, to skewer things or that it's using this to sort of fence with other whales. Yeah, so you think it must be for you know stabbing sharks or skewering fish prey or something. Though it's funny that people think, oh yeah, it's for, for skewering fish that they're going to eat. But if that were true, wouldn't that be a little awkward? Like how would it get the fish to its mouth after that? Yeah. <laughs> Like you would think it, you, normally you don't need a stab and then eat. If you're a whale, you just eat, you just bite and then swallow. Mm -hmm. Anyway, there have been some accounts of what appear to be various of offensive uses of the tusk, uh, but these might be coincidental or secondary behaviors. And then there are all uh, other odd proposals, including things like stabbing through surface ice to create holes for breathing. Of course, remember the narwhal is an air-breathing mammal. But the fact that the tusk is hollow and filled with sensitive nerve endings has led some researchers to believe it is a sensory organ. And there, there is some evidence that it can be used for gathering and even potentially for sharing information about the characteristics of seawater, maybe things like temperature, salinity, and so forth. However, one of the most important clues about the primary evolutionary justification of the tusk is the fact of sexual dimorphism. So the tusks are almost always found in males. And one obvious conclusion from this is that the tusk can't be necessary for survival or else females would have them as well, right? So it can't provide a major individual survival advantage or else you'd expect all individuals to have them. Or we would at least observe, uh, you know, the, the whales that have them out competing the other one, the, the ones that don't have them in survival, which is not the case. So one of the leading theories then is that it's a sexually selected trait. It's a body feature without a major role in survival, which grows very prominent in males because it increases reproductive success, maybe by being more appealing to female narwhals or maybe by causing rival males to stay away and so forth. And anyway, uh, so the recent paper I found was one by Graham et al. published in Biology Letters called The Longer the Better, Evidence that Narwhal Tusks Are Sexually Selected. Uh, this was from 2020. And of course, this paper acknowledges that it's really difficult to study narwhals in the wild to figure out what the tusk is for. So instead, it asks if we can infer anything about tusk function from examining the natural variation in narwhal tusk measurements that have been taken over the course of the last 35 years. And so their sample comprised 245 individual adult males. And based on these measurements, the authors conclude that the evidence does suggest the primary driver of tusk evolution is sexual selection. Quote, by combining our results on tusk scaling with known material properties of the tusk, we suggest that the narwhal tusk is a sexually selected signal that is used during male-male contests. Uh, so how would you conclude this? Well, the tusk demonstrates a growth pattern known as hyperallometry, which means a body feature that grows faster than the body as a whole. So, uh, for example, most body features are roughly allometric. They're linearly allometric. So they grow in size proportional to the rest of the body. If your body is bigger overall, you probably also have longer shin bones and larger hands and so forth. Some features might be hyper 
faux allometric or you know suballometric they grow less than the body as a whole but narwhal tusks are hyperallometric in the largest individuals the tusks grow longer than simple linear scaling would predict so they're not just big in proportion to the rest of the body they're way bigger than that they're, they they just they, they get ridiculously huge and so this is not proof but it is characteristic of traits that are sexually selected and the authors write in their conclusion quote sexually selected signals used in male male competition are more likely to exhibit hyperallometry when compared to other sexually selected traits because the information being signaled is simple i am bigger than you to convey this message males exaggerate the size of their signals which facilitate the detection of size discrepancies between individuals reducing the likelihood of engaging in potentially dangerous fights and they uh, note that this could explain the so-called tusking behavior that's been observed where male narwhals sometimes appear to be crossing tusks or almost like dueling with their tusks mm. um which could actually be not a form of fighting, but a way for the animals to compare the size of their tusks in order to avoid a fight. So in, in an interesting twist, it could be the case that our naive intuition that this tusk is a weapon is true in a sense, but it's a weapon designed specifically to look scary because it will discourage actual fighting between males in sexual competition most of the time. So it's, you know, two rival males are, are competing for a chance to mate, and one of them goes, wow, that, that other one's tusk is absurdly long. No need to fight this out. My mistake. See you later. <laughs> Now, they say that the existing evidence sort of points us in this direction, but it's not conclusive. There are alternate explanations. Maybe the large tusk plays a role in mate choice itself. Maybe females prefer males with larger tusks. Uh, uh, but there, in general, there's still just a lot we don't know about these animals. So, so the book is not com completely closed on this question. And it's also possible that the tusk has multiple secondary functions, for example, as a sensory organ, like we talked about earlier. Though, again, as I mentioned earlier, th those secondary functions can't be all that crucial for survival, or we would see that, you know, we would see that playing out in narwhal populations. The ones with the tusks would be more likely to survive, and that's not what we find. Now, to bring it back to the reason I wanted to talk about narwhals in today's episode, you may remember one strange fact about the narwhal's tusk from our previous episodes where these animals came up, and it's that the narwhal's tusk is not an external keratinous horn like that of the rhinoceros. Instead, it is a tooth. And I don't just mean it is made out of the same stuff as a tooth. It is literally a tooth. It is a tooth from the upper jaw that has been repurposed by evolution to grow into a tusk by changing the orientation of growth so that it grows straight out forward, forward out of the jaw, and then erupts from the flesh of the face. It literally grows through the flesh of the upper lip and then continues growing rapidly and, as we've seen, even hyperallometrically. Uh, but here's what I've been getting hung up on. The narwhal's tusk is not only a tooth. In almost all cases, it is the left mm. canine, the left maxillary canine tooth having erupted from the upper lip. And this is this is certainly something when you learn it for the first time, it does it does feel a little bit wrong. I mean, a number yeah. of these these uh, factoids about the narwhal perhaps feel a little wrong, you know, because ultimately it's just a far weirder and perhaps sillier animal than <laughs> than most of us assumed. It is not silly; it is deadly serious. <laughs> but it does have one tooth just poking out of its lip for I don't know ten feet. But you're not allowed to laugh. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, anyway, so to quote from a uh, paper from 2012 in uh, the anatomical record by Nuia et al., uh, quote, males usually exhibit an erupted tusk on the left side and an unerupted embedded tusk on the right. So it's got two of these teeth. It's got, you know, that's symmetrical. There's one on each side, except usually one just kind of grows a little bit and then stays inside the upper jaw and doesn't do anything while the other one breaks through the skin and grows up to 10 feet long. 
So that's what you usually see. Uh, but then uh, the quote continues, whereas females usually have two embedded tusks, neither erupting, other less common expressions of narwhal dentition include males with two tusks, males with two embedded tusks, so neither one comes out, mm. females with one erupted and one embedded tusk, and females with two erupted tusks. And I checked, I think there's only been one documented case of the latter, of the females with two tusks coming out. Uh, but the authors of this paper do extensive analysis to confirm that these are not horns, they are teeth. And they figure out exactly what teeth they are. They are the upper canines, and in almost all cases, the left upper canine. Now, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I am just as struck by the fact that the tusk is actually the left canine as I am about the fact that it's a tooth to begin with. Why the left canine? As the paper mentions, narwhals occasionally have two erupted tusks, two tusks of, of about the same length coming out together. It's rare, but you find some like that. And if you see pictures of the narwhals with two tusks, they look much more appropriate to the preferences of nature. You can look up images of this online. In fact, even though they're much more rare in the wild, uh, a lot of the images of narwhal skulls have two tusks, I guess, because the rare ones get photographed more often. Well, I mean, I guess on one hand, uh, the left-handed side is the sinister side, the sinestral side. <laughs> so if, if you're going to have a crazy super long tooth emerge from your face, eh, maybe the, the, the sinister side makes sense. Well, that's just your twisted mind working. It's, it's fancy. I mean, no, the, c come on. The, like the, the two tusks, they look more like something that you would just by intuition expect to find in the ocean, much more so than the common one tusk skull, which when I see it, I mean, it is beautiful, but it also, it looks unbalanced and wrong. Though I will say that the two tusk narwhal, if you look up images of uh, specimens of this creature, like this one is, is perplexing as well because it kind of, it doesn't form... Um, they're not perfectly parallel to each other. It creates kind of a V shape um, mm -hmm. that uh, is a little confusing and certainly makes you lean more into possibilities. Yeah. That this is not about stabbing or using these, uh, these tusks for some sort of a, a physical practical use, but something else like the, they look more like communications array when you see two of them as opposed to just one. Well, yeah, I think having two of them even further highlights that these are obviously not practically useful for something like like catching prey or eating. You know, you just mm -hmm. you look at that and it's like, how how is that going to work? And it, it's obvious they're not using it for that, at least not most of the time. Right. Uh, I know there are these little anecdotes of somebody saying that the, you know they saw a narwhal like tap a fish with a tusk or something. So maybe, but that that clearly does not appear to be a primary use of them. Uh, but I wanted to come back to the, the idea that it. It looks it looks wrong, at least, even though, of course, you know, th this is what evolution selected. It is uh, it, it is right for something. It has a use, but it looks wrong to our brains. And so it, it causes you to ask the question, well, first of all, why is it that evolution drove the narwhal to be unbalanced in this way? And, and second, why is it that my intuition tells me incorrectly that a long single tusk should not emerge from the socket of the left maxillary canine? Like, if, if an animal has one tusk, it should come out of a hole right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to be the beginning of a series of episodes. We're going to do at least two, maybe more. We'll see. Uh, but they will be on asymmetry in the animal world. When an animal's left and right do not match... So in future episodes, uh, we will we will explore some theoretical questions about uh, about uh, embryonic development and how animal asymmetry comes about. Uh, probably look at some crabs and, and other crustaceans. But today, I think we're gonna we're gonna look especially at like whales and uh, and other swimming creatures of the sea, uh, and just generally highlight some interesting examples of asymmetry in the natural world. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, I think it's important to acknowledge at the beginning that the kind of symmetry or asymmetry we're talking about, the kind of symmetry we expect to see in animals, is only one specific type of symmetry called bilateral symmetry, and not all animals actually possess it, even in an approximate sense. So bilateral symmetry is actually a fairly restricted type of symmetry. There are three dimensions of space, and if you plot a human body on those three dimensions, you'll notice we are actually only symmetrical along one of those three axes. So on height, our heads and our feet, of course, are not mirror images of each other. On depth, we're also not symmetrical. Our backs do not mirror our fronts. We don't have faces or butts on both sides. 
it's only across our width that you find approximate symmetry. Our left side roughly mirrors our right side. And in three-dimensional space, the most perfectly symmetrical form is actually a sphere, since if you divide a sphere in half along any plane you want, no matter its orientation, the two sides will match. Uh, And I hesitate because I'm about to make a generalization about geometry. I'm always afraid I'm going to say something wrong there, but I tried to look this up and confirm it. I believe this is unique to the sphere, that all other 3D shapes can be bisected in ways where the two halves may have equal volume, but will not match in outline. But if you cut a sphere in half, it's always two perfect hemispheres, no matter what direction you cut from. And this actually connects to a passage in a book I came across uh, by the mathematician Herman Weil called Symmetry from Princeton University Press in 1952. And uh, Weil is writing about uh, about the history of association between symmetry in the geometric sense and the concept of beauty, uh, you know, moral virtue and perfection. And he writes, quote, because of their complete rotational symmetry, the circle in the plane and the sphere in space were considered by the Pythagoreans the most perfect geometric figures. And Aristotle ascribed spherical shape to the celestial bodies because any other would detract from their heavenly perfection. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting knowing what we know now about the cause of spherical objects in space, uh, namely gravity, right? That as as the mass of an object increases, it tends to become more and more perfectly spherical uh, with the, I guess, the end point of that being that a black hole theoretically is pretty much perfectly spherical, whereas smaller objects in space, because gravity is not as strong a force on the uh, on the the smoothing of their outer edges, they can have more irregular shapes. This is why you get irregular potato-shaped comets and asteroids, but you you start getting up into planet size and, and you move closer and closer to spherical perfection. But anyway, Weil goes on to quote a poet named Anna Wickham, which was actually the pseudonym of a modernist poet named Edith Alice Mary Harper, Uh, in connecting the idea of symmetry to God or the divine being. So uh, Wickham writes, quote, God, thou great symmetry, who put abiding lust in me from whence my sorrows spring, for all my frittered days that I have spent in shapeless ways, give me one perfect thing. And then Vile writes, Symmetry, as wide or as narrow as you may define its meaning, is one idea by which man through the ages has tried to comprehend and create order, beauty, and perfection. And equating symmetry with beauty, goodness, and perfection, and even divinity can be found all throughout literature. I I think of uh, Blake's The Tiger, you know, what immortal hand or eye could Mm -hmm. frame thy fearful symmetry? I guess it makes you want to say symmetry there. Uh, but th- this clearly is has not just a geometric meaning where you know, well, the two halves of the tiger do match one another roughly because it is an animal with bilateral symmetry, uh, but that it means something more than that. Symmetry here is in some sense synonymous with greatness or divinity. Yeah, it's uh, the tiger is, is a perfect organism in, in Blake's eye here. Um, yeah, and, you know, a lot can be said about our obsession with uh, with symmetry uh, to the point to where it's like a flawed uh, obsession with it. Like we think mm-hmm. that we want, say, perfectly symmetrical faces when uh, most faces are certainly not uh, symmetrical. And if you take even famous and uh, you know often held up as beautiful faces and you uh, do the trick of creating a symmetrical, symmetrical face out of it, it's going to look wrong to your eyes. It may, yeah. and it may look, very well look unnatural. Well, the the whole quest for symmetry in in aesthetic beauty um, is one of those where it's like there's almost a kind of inverse uncanny valley. It seems like uh, people's natural preferences are something that tends very close to symmetry. But then if you get right up to it and go to actual symmetry, it's like, oh, no, 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 that, that looks all wrong. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you want to be re- like right in the zone where you're approaching symmetry, but not there. Yeah, though there certainly when you get into design, it gets it gets weird because take airplanes for example. Mm-hmm. Airplanes tend to look best to our eye when they are perfectly symmetrical, and mm-hmm. they, and there are various reasons for that. And if you see uh, an asymmetrical airplane, and there there have been certainly been some uh, some very uh, asymmetrical looking airplane designs. Uh, 
uh, here and there throughout aviation history, they do look incredibly wrong to the eye. Um, and they, that they shouldn't you fly. Off. Yeah, like how 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 was that a good idea? But uh, I mean, it, it it can work. Uh, it's just you you generally don't see it. Well, there's a different logic at work here, but that just sort of reminds me, incidentally, of uh, how I'm always surprised at the idea that a plane can continue to fly with one engine, you know, as like mm-hmm. two jet engines, like one engine fails, but it can keep flying with the other one, which make th- that doesn't seem right. It seems like, oh, well, if only one engine is going, then shouldn't it just sort of like spin out of control? But no, I mean, as long as it's generating forward thrust, it can keep going usually. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so th- there, there's always a strong argument, you know, that much of what we find beautiful and good is biologically contingent, that it has at least in part to do with the kind of animals we are and how we relate to our environment. And of course, we are part of that clade of animals known as bilateria. These these are the animals featuring bilateral symmetry during embryonic development. Now, of course, this is always approximate, right? Because while your left and your right, in one sense, do match, they are mirror images of each other, as you were just talking about. They're not perfect mirror images of each other, and especially on the inside, because we have, say, uh, asymmetric distribution of our internal organs, like the heart's more to one side, the liver's more to the other, and so forth. But for for approximate terms, at least externally, our left and our right sides match, but not all animals exhibit bilateral symmetry. Some have radial symmetry, meaning they grow in like repeated structures in a more spiral pattern. And there are some like sponges, for example, those are animals, but they have no symmetry at all. But most animals like humans are bilaterally symmetrical as, as our bodies grow during embryonic development, they grow into basically uh, mirrored halves on the left and right. But as we've already seen with the narwhal, some animals with bodies that mostly adhere to bilateral symmetry present with isolated but radical deviations, such as the narwhal's left maxillary canine turning into a tusk almost as long as the animal itself. And this is not even the only example of fascinating asymmetry in the bodies of whales. Yeah, yeah. I want to get into something that we may have touched on this a little bit in the past, uh, but despite the the number of times that whales come up, uh, I don't think we've really gotten into everything here. And it concerns the nature of the blowhole of of whales. Um, again, it just drives home just how mysterious and weird whales really are. Um, so I, I want to start uh, sort of back up before we get to, uh, to where we're going with this discussion of blowholes. Start with the baleen whale. You know, these are filter feeders, which... Uh, as Ryan Tucker Jones points out in Red Leviathan, uh, this is the book about Soviet whaling, and I interviewed uh, uh, Ryan last week on the show. Uh, uh, really fun episode if anyone wants to go back and listen to that. But uh, uh, there's he touches on just sort of how intertwined folktale and legend and mythology is with our understanding of whales and misunderstanding of whales. I want to read this one passage. Quote, Ancient Greeks knew far less about whales than did the whaling Scandinavians, and as these word origins suggest, whales remain mysterious for Russians. For one thing, baleen whales' methods of feeding perplex them. Lacking teeth, the giants seem to have no way of capturing prey. One 10th century Russian poem wondered whether whales, quote, the mother of all fish, uh, unquote, fed themselves on, quote, heavenly fragrances. Direct experience was not necessarily more helpful. A medieval Western whaler who cut into a stranded whale's stomach and found a gray mass of food concluded that it had fed on, quote, internal fog. <laughs> That's great. So, yes, whales are mysterious. And, yeah, you can, you can imagine if you really didn't know what was going on with a baleen whale, you might uh, have trouble figuring out what's going on with their with with their mouths what do they truly feed on what what is there enough of in the ocean for them to consume if they're not you know uh, eating our ships and so forth so anyway if you look at a baleen whale uh, and, and you look away from its mouth you'll notice yes it has it has the the blowholes uh, the blowhole falls well in line with bilateral anatomy there are two of them in kind of a v shape and uh, and guess what? If you weren't aware of this, here's your your fun uh, in, initial fact: they are repositioned nostrils. Imagining the evolutionary journey of those nose holes. <laughs> yes, 
Because that's it is a journey. The nose holes traveling from the front of the snout all the way to the top of the head. I mean, we can imagine it. It's hard to imagine with our own face, uh-huh. but imagine it with a much bigger and more prolonged head. Amazing. So as Rosten and Roth point out in a 2021 paper published in the Journal of Anatomy, uh, the nasal passage uh, in, in these whales has rotated dorsally over the course of evolution. Uh, and early in development, cessation embryos have head morphologies that resemble other mammals. So you can actually look up embryo images and observe the nasal openings shift from the tip of the snout to the back of the head. Uh, if you want to see some, some, some easily accessed examples of this, uh, Panda's Thumb, a science blog, has some great images of this in their post, Whale Evolution, the Blowhole. And I included these for you to look at here, Joe. Um, if, if, you, if you look up this blog post, you'll see a trio of images with the embryo, and uh, there's a little white arrow pointing out uh, where the nostrils are and then where they travel to. It's just as you say, yeah. So er, earlier in development, they're they're toward the front, like they would be on the snout, and more like they would have been on the whales uh, on the whales' uh, land walking ancestors. But yeah, then as development moves on, they move up the head, uh, up to where I don't I don't know if this is the right terminology, but you might call like the forehead, and then further mm-hmm. and further. Yeah, yeah. Now it's it's obviously natural selection went this way, um, and it's easy to just sort of. Uh, assume, okay, natural uh, um, uh, evolution and natural selection and knows what it's doing. Uh, who are we to question it? So it's easy to sort of overlook the basic question in all of this. Why? Why does the nostril, uh, why do the nose open, the nasal openings on these creatures wander over the course of their evolutionary development until they're on the top of the head? The basic answer is that while these creatures, yes, technically could still breathe through their nostrils when they were positioned at the end of their snouts, they would have to lift their snouts out of the water to do so. And that requires more energy. If, it's, if you have the, the, the nose and the nasal openings positioned higher up on the snout, well, that's less uh, lift required to do so, less energy. And so this is why we have that gradual movement of the nasal openings. And we have fossil evidence to back this up. And there are examples of this in that panda's thumb post as well. We, uh, for instance, we have fossil evidence of, uh, of Rhodocetus. Uh, this is a whale uh, from roughly 47 to 46 million years ago. And this one offers a, a midpoint. Uh, where we see the nasal opening not at the end of the snout, like we see in uh, in really ancient uh, uh, whale ancestors, and also not at the top of the head like we see with modern whales, but that midpoint in between. Now, I'm not speaking from uh, an expert perspective here, but it seems uh, very significant that the that the blowhole eventually moves back to above where the eyes are, right? Because you can imagine mm-hmm. if a whale has to lift its eyes above the surface of the water every time it wants to breathe, or at least to point its eyes up away from where it's scanning, that that's really – it's not just – taking energy i mean of course the energetic uh, investment is significant imagine if you had to like lift your head up every time you wanted to breathe that would that would get tiring after a while but also if you basically like couldn't see what was going on around you every time you had to take a breath because you know you need if you're living under the water you want to keep your eyes fixed below the water that's where the relevant stuff is going on if you have to lift your eyes above the surface of the water uh, you are you are losing sight of your surroundings Exactly. Yeah. This is the, the world that the, the whale has adapted to, the marine environment. And uh, so over time, it just gets to the point where as little of the animal as possible has to breach the surface of the water. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So that's basically the symmetrical whale blowhole. Uh, but here's the here's where it gets fun. This is where it gets asymmetrical because not all whales have two blowholes. Not all have those two nasal openings, repurposed nasal openings on the top of their head. Toothed whales, like the sperm whale, have just one. In fact, on the sperm whale, this single blowhole is at an angle on the left side of the head, and this causes it to blow forward and slightly to the left. So this can actually make sperm whale spouts harder to spot for humans, uh, but also makes them easier to identify if you do spot them, because it's not just blasting uh, straight up. Again, it's blasting forward and slightly to the left. But this, oh, this is this is putting me back in narwhal tusk territory. So it mm-hmm. has one nostril so this is not just the nostrils have moved back along the center line of the skull of cross evolutionary time the nostrils have actually split and one of them has moved back here and the other one i don't know what it's doing something else 
Yeah, the other one, the, the crazy thing is essentially the, the one is still open and active. The other one has sealed over. The other, so the other nasal passage is there. It just does not connect to the surface anymore. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not doing anything. It has another purpose. Uh, so instead of connecting to the exterior of the animal, this other nasal passage supplies air to the phonic lips. The phonic lips produce clicks that travel the length of the nose and through the spermaceti organ of the head uh, to aid in echolocation, or at least this is the most well-accepted theory of what's going on here with the, uh, the structure of the sperm whale's head. So echolocation uh, is using sound waves in order to be able to uh, image underwater to see where things are, not with vision, but by producing clicks that like hit things in the water and then come back to the sensory organs on the whale so they can navigate their environment. And uh, specifically, I think, know where prey is in, in the dark right. waters. Yeah. So if you're diving down to eat yourself some, uh, some squid, some giant squid, maybe, uh, this is what you would, uh, you would use. Now, the evolutionary divergence likely occurred during the Oligocene. This would have been 33 to 23 million years ago as toothed whales diverged from the ancestors of filter-feeding whales. And this would totally make sense. So predatory toothed whales develop asymmetry related to their ability to echolocate because they need to use echolocation to hunt. Filter-feeding whales do not have the same hunting needs, so their skulls remain balanced on the left and right. Um, and, uh, uh, Rob, I, I thought this was a really interesting find. And so I was looking at, to support this. I, I found a 2020 paper on the cranial asymmetry of whales. And this was by, uh, Ellen J. Coombs et al published in BMC biology in, in 2020. And for this paper, uh, making use of museum collections, the researchers compared whale skulls across time, reaching back to whale ancestors that lived 50 million years ago. And the authors write, quote, Early ancestors of living whales had little cranial asymmetry and likely were not able to echolocate. Archaeocetes display high levels of asymmetry in the rostrum, potentially related to directional hearing, which is lost in early neocetes, the taxon including the most recent common ancestor of living cetaceans. Nasofacial asymmetry, uh, so again, uh, asymmetrical uh, uh, placement of the nostrils in the face, becomes a significant feature of odontoceti, or toothed whales, in the early Oligocene, just like you said, um, reaching its highest levels in extant taxa. Separate evolutionary regimes are reconstructed for odontocetes living in acoustically complex environments, suggesting that these niches impose strong selective pressure on echolocation ability and thus increased cranial asymmetry. So, to summarize, the skulls of toothed whales, uh, specifically the toothed ones, just keep getting weirder and more asymmetrical over evolutionary time. Uh, so, as, as the millions of years march on, the heads are getting less and less symmetrical. And this is especially true, apparently, in places where echolocation is more difficult due to environmental conditions. And what could be an example of this? Well, I was looking in the paper, and this could be a coincidence, but they note that the narwhal has an unusually asymmetrical skull apart from the tusk that juts out on one side. Uh, so to read a quote from this paper with a bit of paraphrasing, uh, and remember the, the genus of the narwhal is monodon, uh, one tooth meaning monodon. Monodon remains the most asymmetric skull in the sample, even when the rostrum is removed, which rules out the possibility that an asymmetric tusk and residual teeth may be skewing the overall result. Their unique sound repertoire, narrowband structured in BS, is ideal for projecting and receiving signals in icy, shallow waters where the animals can detect targets in high levels of ambient noise and backscatter. So that's interesting. It, this could be a total coincidence. I would not want to suggest a causal connection. Uh, but it, I, I don't know. It stuck out to me that narwhals have both strongly asymmetrical skulls, probably to aid in echolocation in a difficult environment, and also extreme asymmetrical teeth producing these tusks, probably as a sexually selected trait. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it just goes to show you just how weird whales are. Like they're just yeah. so delightfully strange. Um, and, and again, it's easy to it's easy to take it for granted if you don't uh, 
you don't lean in closely enough, you know? But as wonderful as, as whale bodies are, they are not the only creatures in the sea with uh, striking and, and fascinating imbalances between their left and right sides. Yeah, there are, there are a number of fascinating uh, examples we could turn to. And I don't know, we may, we may come back to some more in, in future episodes. But one that really uh, caught my attention is Histiotuthis, the cockeyed squid. So this is another example of essentially divided attention and divided bodies in the deep ocean. Uh, so uh, Histiotuthis resides in the, the mesopelagic zone or the twilight zone of the ocean. And you can certainly think of this as a realm situated between different kingdoms of illumination. Because above this zone, uh, above the creatures of this realm, well, there, there's, the, that, there's the distant kingdom of light. Okay, uh, there's a dim illumination coming down from the sun, from the, the, the more sunlit portions of the ocean. And so silhouettes can be viewed of creatures above you against that, uh, that faint light. Below you, well, there's the great darkness of the, of the depths. But in that great dark, darkness, you'll glimpse, or if you're a squid, you'll glimpse uh, sparkles and pulsations of bioluminescence here and there. Uh, and of course, both of these sightings are important because they both have to do with organisms that may be a threat, that may be food, etc. Oh, well, this is so interesting because we know of lots of examples on the surface world, say like lots of herbivores on the surface mm-hmm. world that have one eye on each side of their head to try to provide a sort of, uh, you know, as wide a field of view as possible so you can see things approaching you. But it, this is a scenario where you might have a, a head structured like that, but you have totally different seeing needs on either side. Exactly. And so that's, that's what we see with Histiotuthis. As, uh, as described by Thomas Robison and uh, Johnson in their 2017 paper in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B, it is a creature with, quote, two eyes for two purposes. So the, the squid's two eyes here are dimorphic in size, shape, and sometimes lens pigmentation. Uh, I included an image for you to look at here, Joe, and, and, you, and folks uh, listening, you, and you can look up images of this as well. Um, not all images of the squid are going to really capture this, but you'll find some that do. And it's, it's very uh, weird when you can see both eyes at once because one, uh, the, the image I was looking at, one eye is this great big kind of swollen looking eye that has kind of a yellowish or greenish tint to it. Um, mm-hmm. It may appear to be glowing the way that the, the light is catching it. And the other eye uh, appears uh, smaller, flatter, um, uh, you know, almost looks like if you didn't know what you were looking at, you might think, oh, well, this poor squid, one of its eyes is inflamed and swollen, or one of its eyes has been severely wounded and doesn't look like it's, uh, it's operating anymore. But no, both eyes are operating. They're just pointed in different directions, and they have evolved to see differently depending on uh, the environments that they're gazing into. It's beautiful. One looks like a, a, a setting gangrenous sun, and the other <laughs> looks like a blueberry that's a little bit rotten. Right. So it's thought that the larger of the two eyes is honed to spot objects silhouetted against that dim light above, while the smaller eye specializes in spotting the sources of bioluminescence in the darkness below. And the squid will actually position itself in a tail-up position in order to maximize the split vision. Furthermore, the authors share that, uh, that, uh, that we do have, seem to have yellow pigments in the larger eye that may serve to break the counter-illumination camouflage of their prey above. Counter-illumination mm. is an active camouflage method by, uh, by which uh, lights are produced on the body to match background lights. So this would be used by a creature to blend in with the light above it so that creatures below them don't so cleanly make out their dark bodies against the dim lights above. Oh, that's a good survival strategy. Yeah, you you have lights Mm -hmm. on your underside to mimic the sunlight. Yeah, and so uh, the the yellow pigments in this larger eye apparently helps to sort of break through some of that. So Mm. the theory is that we see uh, dimorphic specializations in each eye as an adaptation to the split visual world. 
And uh, this actually reminded me of a, of a, 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 a bit from a Dr. Seuss book, uh, I Had Trouble in Getting to Sola Salu, where you have this character who's dealing with a bunch of threats, and it goes, So I said to myself, now I'll just have to start to be twice as careful and be twice as smart. I'll watch out for trouble in front and back sections by aiming my eyeballs in different directions. And you have this <laughs> character that's kind of like a little bear creature, and his eyes are gazing off in different directions. But essentially, like that's that's kind of what is going on with the with the cockeyed squid here. That's great. It, so uh, I was trying to imagine what scenario could give rise to something like this on a uh, on a land dwelling herbivore, you know. So you have like a bovine that's grazing what it need to have totally different types of eyes or vision on one side of the head and I imagine well, what about some kind of bovine that lives on a tidally locked world and it, it lives <laughs> at the terminator line. So its eye one eye needs to be like uh, shielded because it's always facing toward the hot side of the planet and the other eye needs to be very sensitive because it's always facing toward the dark side. I don't, I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that would be the region that you a life form might be likely to to live in because uh, you would have less of an extreme of heat or, or cold. But of course, it would also be a, a, like a chaotic region as well. You would have probably have a lot of climactic uh, uh, weather going on there. Yeah, tidally locked planet's probably not great for goats, but uh, I was just trying to imagine. Come <laughs> but on. But no, the, the, conceivably, this is the kind of environment that might require some sort of drastic change in uh, the positioning of the eyes and the specialization of the eyes. Um, I mean, it, it, I, I feel like we, I mean, we're so hardwired for our surface world environment. It is difficult for us. It's, it's a little challenging to put ourselves in the mindset and ultimately the, the ocular world of something like a goat. Or something like a you know a purely predatory uh, cat or something, much mm-hmm. less to put ourselves in the mind uh, set in the ocular world of the squid, or or you know to get into the sense worlds of uh, of whales and so forth. It's uh, you know it's 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 a different environment altogether. And these environments, as we see from these examples, we've looked like they almost literally can pull us in, in half. You know, they can, mm, they yeah. can change it. They can break uh, whatever uh, seeming symmetry was there in the body originally uh, as it adapts, as it evolves to fit this environment over time. Oh, th- this raises a question that comes to my mind actually quite often. Uh, I think about like if there were other clades of animals that that uh, became very intelligent and had something like art, uh, mm-hmm. what would what would they find beautiful, and how would it be different from what we find beautiful based on on our brains and our biology? Yeah. Uh, but I think maybe we're going to have to call the first episode there. We will certainly be back with uh, with more marvels of asymmetry in, in subsequent episodes. We're going to talk about uh, crabs and crustaceans. And I think we'll talk about snakes some, probably come back to some fish, and maybe some larger developmental theoretical concerns uh, about where asymmetry comes from in, in the, the, the kingdoms of life. That's right. Uh, in the meantime, you can check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you can find wherever you get your podcast. Tuesdays and Thursdays are our core episodes. Uh, we have a short form artifact or monster fact on Wednesday, a little lister mail on Monday. And then on Friday, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us, with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com.
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 